Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to Crawl Space on the Crawl Space Media Network. If you like this show, you'll love Missing which is also hosted by us. Missing started as Missing Maura Murray, and now it continues raising awareness for all missing people. And we also have an entire network of shows you'll love. Check them out at crawlspace-media.com. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass Amherst student Maura Murray disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in one of the most perplexing mysteries of our time. For years, we have covered Maura's case and the tireless online community that surrounds it in great detail. We have since expanded our mission with this series, raising awareness and shining a light on the stories of other missing persons. We now sit on the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing, which was founded by Bruce Maitland. Bruce's daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing from Montgomery, Vermont on March 19th of 2004, just six weeks after and about 80 miles away from where Maura Murray vanished. Private Investigations for the Missing aims to assist with investigations for underserved families whose missing loved ones have been forgotten by the media or by law enforcement. Through our growing community, we hope to shed a light on these cold cases. Families and loved ones can reach out to us at investigationsforthemissing.org. This is Missing. Welcome back to Missing. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I literally couldn't be better, Tim. How are you today? (laughs) Same. Absolutely. And you know, Lance, our guests today really made our job really easy uh, because we had a great conversation and with two extremely knowledgeable people. And I entered the conversation not knowing very much about these people that we were talking about. I just felt like I got an excellent history lesson that was 
super interesting as well. Right. We're talking about the host of this podcast titled Vanished. And it is attorney Jennifer Taylor and investigator Chris Williamson. And they don't really look into the stories that we cover typically, missing persons and et cetera. They are more historical. Like you said, we spoke about Amelia Earhart in this interview, as well as Jack the Ripper. And I got to say, I think I said it in the interview a couple of times. I knew about Amelia Earhart about as much as anyone else does and had no idea how truly fascinating her disappearance was and all of the theories they present five of the theories to us i would have to say that chris williamson and jennifer taylor are not like obsessed with amelia Earhart's disappearance but they are professionally obsessed with her disappearance they organize it well they're not all over the place they're very linear and they deliver the information in a way where you can consume it, understand it, and really be truly fascinated by it. Agree with all your points, Lance. Uh, great people, great interview, and great show. So make sure you check it out. There is a link in the show notes, or you can go to vanishedshow.com and listen there. And you can also follow them on Twitter at vanishedpod. And while you're at it, follow us on Twitter at MissingCSM. We're at MissingCSM across all social media platforms. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. And be sure to check out all of our fine shows at crawlspace-media.com. And go ahead and follow the new Twitter account at Crawlspace Media for updates on all of those aforementioned fine shows on the Crawlspace Media Network. We are being joined now by Chris Williamson and Jennifer Taylor of Vanished. What's going on, you two? Hey, thanks for having having us. us. It's an honor. Oh, my goodness, an honor. Well, it's really uh, the the honor is really all on this side of the Zoom screen. Um, (laughs) I was a little intimidated that Jen was a lawyer when... uh, Oh, there's... No need for that. <laughs> Anytime we talk to someone who's a lawyer or uh, a doctor, um, I get intimidated. But then I uh, then then I come around because I realize that you're human too, and it's it's good. She is. <laughs> yes, she is. And you're getting her from her office, so it's especially intimidating today. I know. I can't even I, form a sentence. Oh no, we're going on a oh. virtual tour. Uh oh, very official. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need to add some stuff on my walls. It's boring in here. No, no, you get those degrees on your walls, right? Or yeah. certificates. Yeah. Most important things. Yeah. Nice. We only have the the fake degrees on our walls. They're not oh. fake. <laughs> I really bought those at Staples. There you go. Cool, cool. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about your show. When did you start it? Why do you do it? Yeah, sure. That's a good question. I, I. Really, it was sort of a spinoff of of Chasing Earhart. I had had that project going on for some time, and I had wanted to do something different for the Amelia Earhart case and sort of approach it in a way that had never it had never been approached. Um, and so I had this idea for sort of this this trial by jury uh, concept, really. Um, and so I started out, started down the road on the show, the first half of season one, which was all about Earhart, and it was really just you know, taking it from the cradle to the disappearance and everything beyond. And about halfway into the show, into the season one, um, I, I synced up with Jen. I kind of sort of uh, found her in the Astonishing Legends group. And uh, we started talking about 
sort of offline off the record about, you know, hey, I have this kind of crazy idea. Is it possible? Is it doable? How would we sort of breathe life into it? And she came on board and sort of advised. Uh, I think it was episode eight of uh, of season one. And uh, everybody really loved the concept and loved her being a part of the show. So she agreed to come on and become a permanent co-host of the rest of season one. And uh, after season one ended, it, it was such a popular show that, that people decided they wanted us to branch out and do some more. So we started season two and started branching out into some other cases. And uh, here we are about, you know, the midway point through season two. So it's uh, it's been a long journey, but it's been a lot of fun. That's pretty cool. That's uh, I got to admit, um, until looking into your project, Chasing Earhart and uh, the podcast, I really I mean, obviously, I knew about Amelia Earhart, but mm. I didn't know that much. And and I I don't know why. Uh, what what yeah. was it about that particular disappearance that struck a chord in you? Uh, you know, it's it's just been something that I, I'd always been fascinated with since I was a kid. It goes all the way back to the beginning of my life, really, into early grade school. And, and I just I became fascinated with different aspects of of her life and the case in general, as we kind of as I started looking into it more as I grew up a little bit more, got into college and started, you know, the ideas became more complex. I, I think what was such a fascinating aspect of of that case in particular is that one, she was arguably the most famous person on the planet on the day she disappeared so you know it's it's think about the most famous person you can imagine in the world right now and then just vanishing off the face of the earth with not with no trace at all um and that's really what it was you know this is here's someone that was uh you know very close friends with uh with the first family with president fdr with eleanor roosevelt you know she was well connected in hollywood she was world famous at the time um and i think the idea the second idea that really attracted me to the case so much was that you know, almost every year around the anniversary or, 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 you know, something pops up and it just re gives birth to the case all over again. There's some new piece of evidence and some theory uh, that gets, you know, put to the test and put under the microscope. And I thought that was very fascinating as well, because this case, when you get into it, it's broken up into these, these camps and everybody sort of got their idea of what they believe happened to Amelia Earhart. And you got some of the smartest people on the planet arguing for those respective camps. And it's just a really interesting case. And, you know, here we are going to go on 83, 84 years after her and Fred Noonan disappeared. And, and we still really aren't much closer to having any idea of what happened to them than we were the day after they disappeared. So it's it's a it's a case that's that's continuously it's a definition of a rabbit hole. It really is. And it just keeps getting deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer answers. So that's just fascinating to me. It's like the deeper you look, the, the worse it gets. Absolutely. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about those camps uh, that you describe? Like, what are the main pillars of thought on where Amelia could be? Yeah, Jen, go for it. You you were intimately involved in season one, so go for it. So there's five that we covered in season one, but there's more than just five. There's so many different theories about what happened to her, but we focus on five. The first one that we focused on is commonly referred to as crash and sink. And that is just the theory that she was flying. She ran out of gas. She fell into the ocean. And it's just a matter of time before everyone, someone can find the plane. And that the only reason we haven't been able to find the plane is just because the water is so deep and it's a tiny little plane. And and that makes a lot of sense. Um, One of the strongest pieces of evidence for that theory are the logs. She was headed towards a ship 
called the Itasca and the Itasca was communicating with her moments before she disappeared. And those, we don't have audio, they weren't recorded. It was such a long time ago. We just have the transcript of the logs, but we do have the uh, recollections of some of the people that were there who described the signal as coming in very strong. So they would have called it, what was in it? An S5 signal strength, which I learned means very strong, likely within an hour's distance. Uh, or mm-hmm. however you know however long the distance it, it's been a, it's been a minute Since around 200 miles ish out yeah yeah and so that is really the strongest piece of evidence for those people that are like look she she almost made it she must have ran out of gas that she must have just missed uh slightly uh noonan was her navigator he was a great navigator but it was also before gps and so they must have just made a navigation mistake and fell out of the sky and into the water uh, so there's that theory. Uh, the next one that we covered, I don't remember the order in which we covered things. I'm so <laughs> sorry, but I know that there is the castaway was next. Okay. That's what I thought. The Nicomororo theory. So there's another theory that says that, uh, instead of being close to that ship, she was, uh, she ended up south on a different Island. Uh, it's not too far away, but it's far enough away that, and we talk about this on the show where it's, it, it, it would have been a stretch for her to be able to make it there with the amount of gas we think that she had, but technically possible. Um, and that theory is based on people claiming that they have seen like wreckage, plane wreckage floating up on the beach uh, on an island that used to be called Gardner Island is now called Nicomororo and that her and Noonan lived on that island for a time and eventually passed away on the island. Uh, that is if that's the theory that was recently given uh, given given attention by National Geographic. Uh, they had they had uh, who did they send out there? I uh, Bob now. Ballard, who actually discovered the Titanic. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they sent him out there to go circle. It's a tiny, tiny little island, and he went out there and circled the island looking for evidence. They didn't find anything. Uh, however, those that believe that she must have landed there, they still stick to their guns. They say no. We have uh, there's a very particular piece of um, aluminum that they found that they've held up to pictures of her plane, and they say, "Oh no, this is the you know this is it. This is a piece of her plane." Uh, they there were bones that they found uh, that have since disappeared that they claim are the bones of of Earhart or Noonan. Uh, so that that's a whole and and the the Tiger organization T I G H A R uh, they're the ones promoting that theory. Um, so let's see. We next covered Buka, I think. Yes, that was number Buka. three. Mm-hmm. Was that next on the list? Okay. So yep. the theory behind this one is that she was on her way um, about halfway through this leg of the journey, realized she would not have enough fuel to make it and made the decision to turn around and that it was on her way back uh, is when she crashed. And there is a plane, um, Buka is an island off of- It's it's Matsongan, it's real close to Papua New Guinea. Okay, New Guinea. Uh, See, I was gonna say the right thing, but I didn't wanna open my mouth and say the wrong thing. Um, So there is actually a plane that they found there. Um, It is highly degraded by uh, coral. Um, And there's even a story that goes along with this. There's a, uh, I believe a kid uh, who around the time that Earhart disappeared saw a plane crash. 
saw some people get out and try to radio for help. Um, and then I don't recall what was what supposedly happened uh, to the actual people, but I mean, clearly they, I mean, they passed away. Um, yeah. And so the theory that the theory in this camp is that well that was Earhart and it, it actually is on her path it didn't you know it's, it's much much further away than anyone would have expected to look and and uh the, the 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 people promoting this theory say well that is because she was smart enough to know that the winds were stronger than they expected they were coming you know coming right towards them they knew they were going to make it fuel. They, they turned around they caught a storm and in the logs she does say she does make make reference to a storm, which was odd because there was not any bad weather near the Itasca. Uh, obviously, the biggest piece of evidence that cuts against this theory is the recollections of those that were hearing uh, her come in on the Itasca, that the signal strength was very strong. And this seems to be too far away uh, for that to be true. But there are explanations for that. We've we've talked to radio people that say, well, you know, skip patterns. Like there is possible for radio waves to bounce off the atmosphere and that it could have been picking up a strong signal strength, even though like she was too far away. So it's possible. Did we do Japanese capture next? No, that's a big one. No? Yeah, Japanese capture, yeah. Yeah, so the fourth theory that we covered was uh, it's sort of a like a continuation of crash and sink. Uh, the, those that believe in this theory believe that she did crash her plane into the water, all, although they give a different location than where the crash and sink mm-hmm. people think it was. Uh, yeah. But the theory is that they crashed and that they were promptly captured by the Japanese and were taken uh, as prisoner and kept on the island of Saipan for a time and then eventually executed because they were suspected of being spies. Because you'll remember this was uh, it, during this time we were- you know, Right before World uh, War II. Right, right, right. Yeah. So we, we were not friends with Japan and there was a lot of military activity going on in the South Pacific. And there were a lot of places that were was very dangerous for her to fly through. Um, and so those that, promote this theory point to uh, witnesses on Saipan uh, who claim to have seen a woman that matches her description. Yeah. Or interacted even in certain cases. Or maybe even interacted with her. Um, Yeah. Right. And there's a lot to this theory. Uh, That was just like the bare bones of it. History Channel did cover this theory. This was the famous doc photo uh, where a photo came out and it supposedly showed her and Noonan sitting on the dock there. And then the mm-hmm. final theory that we covered is really just an extension of the Japanese capture theory. And that theory says that, well, instead of being executed in Japan, uh, the U.S. government actually helped her uh, come back to the United States and that she lived the rest of her life under an assumed name, uh, that name being Irene Bolum. There's a woman, uh, a real woman named Irene Bolum that a lot of people believe was actually Earhart. Uh, that one, I think, for me, is a little bit more into the conspiracy theory side of things. So we kind of started with most normal, boring theory you could give and ended up in she was repatriated in the United States and the whole government was in on this conspiracy to help get her home. Yeah, it's it's very uh, it's, it's very like all over the spectrum as far as the yeah. theories and stuff. Yeah. And there's, that's that just the beginning. One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, that is incredible. Um, I feel like I just got a thirteen-minute like history lesson. It, it, that, that, it like in this nice little uh, neat capsule. That's so cool. Um, I didn't know about this. Uh, I didn't know about all these things. I didn't know about uh, yeah. how many theories there were. 
and um, I didn't realize that there was uh, so much, I guess, intrigue as far as where the country was at, specifically with other countries like Japan. Like, how did that mm-hmm. factor d- didn't cross my mind with Amelia Earhart? That's that's pretty cool. Uh, with that Japanese theory, would was there any mention that she was perhaps used as collateral? Because you said she knew the first family. Um, was mm-hmm. there any, any any mention like that? Because I feel like if they had captured her and she's told her who they were, her and Noonan were, that they might have used that as, as some sort of like, I don't know, bargaining yeah. chip or something. Uh, yeah, there's I mean, there's there's speculation all over the map there. And that's that's kind of the one of the difficult aspects of the case is that you have basically it's almost like a choose your own adventure because we don't really know. It's such a mystery after what happened, after what Jen referred to as sort of the last radio messages. You know, we don't really know what happened. So there is speculation. Some people in the Japanese capture camp believe that when the Japanese did uh, come into contact with their heart noon and they absolutely knew who they were. Uh, right off the bat, they knew who who they had and they knew the value of who they had. And there's other people that would argue that, you know, there were such an indigenous people at the time or the particular people that came into contact with her that actually grabbed them uh, would have would have had no idea who she was in that part of the world unless they physically identified themselves as Earhart and Noonan. And if, if they were, in fact, spying, which is, again, another small branch of Japanese capture if they were knowingly in on the plan and were spying for the U.S. government. Oh, yeah, I didn't even they... get into that. There's a yeah. whole theory that they were sitting there by the government and that the flight around the world was a cover. Yeah. 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 So if that was the case, then they 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 probably wouldn't have come right out and said, you know, who they were right off the bat. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's very possible there is. Um, we do know that uh, there's a very famous woman, a uh, fl- flyer in her own right. Her name is Jackie Cochran, uh, who she actually founded the WASP, the Women Air Force Service Pilots, um, and was a, a really good, close friend of Amelia Earhart. Um, they, you know, they flew together a lot. They were they kind of stood for the same causes. Um, she was act. Jackie Cochran was sent over years later. I want to say it was about five years after 1937. Um, to do some reconnaissance in uh, in Japan in the in the Saipan area and to over some kind of a uh, a cover that she was going to make some kind of report create some report and send it back to the U.S. government and she came and went and never filed that report and a lot of people that believe in the Irene Bolam theory or believe in the spy theory in some some portion uh, believe that Jackie Cochran was actually sent over to get her friend to smuggle Earhart out of of uh, Japanese custody and back to the U S and repatriation. So yeah, she, um, you know, we don't know if that's the case. Um, there was a really juicy tidbit dropped by Lisa Cotham, who was a secretary of the 99s, who, uh, was, uh, as an organization that Amelia Earhart was the first president of women, women pilots. And Lisa mentioned that during season one, and uh, we did a little research into that. And unfortunately there's not much known other than that. So the, the answer to that question is we just don't know, you know, if they knew who they had and if or if they eventually found out who they had and then decided to keep them longer, potentially, as Jen alluded to, that they were maybe executed years later and kept in Japanese custody for some time. Um, part of that, that whole uh, Japanese capture deal is that Earhart might not have been executed. She might have actually died of dysentery. Um, she had notoriously terrible issues with sinus problems, and she actually had a, a surgery performed sort of on the on the low uh, early in her career that was supposed to correct that uh, that issue that she had. Um, and so it's very possible that she could have died, you know, alone in a jail cell in Saipan, which the, actually the jail cell is still standing. It's still there. Um, and there was marks on the wall and people are speculating that those marks might've been from Earhart herself. Maybe we don't know. Uh, this, this case is like I alluded to, we don't know what we don't know. It really is sort of the, the ultimate rabbit hole and, um, finding out what would happen 
what happened to them finding that airplane uh, potentially would would truly be the holy grail um, if it was found today. So it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, she's arguably the most famous disappearance of all time. Okay, yeah. if you if you are uh, you got a you got a chip to play on roulette here. Mm-hmm. With, uh, <laughs> where's your where's your chip going? What theory, Jen? Oh, why do I gotta go first? Um, <laughs> first, ladies first. I like the Buka theory a lot for a lot of reasons, um, but I also acknowledge that it has certain problems that um, take a lot of coincidental things lining up just right for it to explain those problems. And so, while I I, I like that theory a lot, um, I still have to go back to crash and sink. I, st- I, I tend to think that the most likely scenario is what everyone thought happened at the very beginning, which was that she crashed in the ocean. There was a search party. They couldn't find her. A little plane, 10,000 feet of water. It's not... 18,000 feet of water. 18,000 feet of water. Yeah. It's, it's not hard to see why they wouldn't have been able to find her. And it's also not hard to see why when somebody like that disappears and it's been years and years and years and we still don't have an answer and we still don't have a plane and no one can get closure it's really easy to see how people can come up with these other stories because she was a hero she was very well known and heroes don't tend to die in tragic meaningless accidents right Mm -hmm. we want to tell a story um and so i can totally understand how that could have happened um so um, I, I tend to lean towards crash and sink although i do think that there is a lot to the, the buka theory i just I, I feel like i'm really interested to watch that one to see what mm-hmm. evidence comes of that yeah I, I i would agree with jen i think i mean the crash and sink she made some really excellent arguments in season one when she started talking to and some of the witnesses that she brought um to the table in season one like just really excellent stuff crash and sink you made a you made a um a reference to what, which I really love. And I always quote it now is like the, uh, Atasca logs would be considered sort of like the final text messages in a modern day, like murder trial or something like that. We would look at that as like, these are the last communication, known communication that Earhart gave. Um, I tend to skew a little more controversial because I love to look at everything on the table. I think it's really, and because we don't have any concrete evidence, I mean, other than just kind of, uh, you know, um, circumstantial, lots of circumstantial evidence to support multiple theories. I think crash and sink is, is very likely, uh, it came out of her own mouth, you know, she, they were dropping to a thousand feet. There's multiple reasons why they would do that. Um, as, as an aviator, if you were going to drop a plane to a thousand feet above water, um, you're probably doing that because you want to put the plane on the water as soft as possible. Um, there were people that built that plane that we talked to like descendants of those people. We have official records that are saying that that plane, if it hit water, uh, in the right way would have been like a ping pong ball with wings. It would have float, floated ultimately if it hadn't, if anything didn't get punctured. Um, this particular plane, uh, we don't know how it hit the water. So she might've been trying to put the plane down as, as soft as possible so they could float as long as possible. Uh, so they had hope of getting rescue. Um, but you're looking, like Jen said, you're looking in an area that's roughly 18,000 feet um, for a 39 and a half foot airplane. That's you know basically in an area that's the size of Texas in either direction. So it's very difficult to find that plane. It's it's large. It's really the the smallest needle in the largest haystack in the world. Um, but I, I agree again with Jen about Buka. Buka is very promising. Um, here's a guy, Bill Snavely, who's been researching this for a long time. He's actually got a plane. Nobody's ever found a plane. 
Um, he started his theory with the plane and sort of worked backwards, which I think is really fascinating. It's like it's like finding a body and having no idea how that body got there and trying to work backwards to figure out and tell that story. That's basically what Bill Snavely has been doing. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of positive um, aspects going for that theory as far as the story. Uh, you know, making it work, making it fit, because sometimes that's what you have to do uh, to kind of describe what happened. And then they've got a lot of characteristics in that plane. They've ruled out a lot of uh, military, they've ruled out military aircraft. They've ruled out Japanese um, zeros, things, planes that were that, that were really similar to her plane. Um, the wings, uh, the, um, the length, the wingspan, there's multiple characteristics over a dozen that match that plane, but it's engulfed in probably the most volatile underwater environment on the face of the earth in the middle of a, of a community that's having a civil war at the moment right now. So it's a very difficult place to go, but it's only 150 feet of water. So it's, it's not, it's not very difficult to, once you get there to explore it and to actually get down to it. Um, but they have a very project blue angel on their team. They have a very difficult task ahead of them. And right now they're, they're trying to find out whose plane that is. You know, I, I I love the Buka theory. I think it's promising. I think it's I think we need to find out whose plane that was and bring closure to whoever was piloting that plane, whether it was Earhart or not. It was it's either the Holy Grail of aviation, or you're going to find out a, a really great story uh, one way or another. So I think Crash and Sync is very promising. I think Buka is very promising. Uh, Japanese capture to me, it's like they're all promising in their own right. They all have really interesting evidence to back them, and it's. It's um, one of those things where you can basically be bought and sold by any theory if you look at it by itself. So it's a very difficult case, you know, when it comes to just looking at it as a whole. Yeah, well, and with Buka, there's a ticking clock, right? Because yes. the aluminum is degrading. And when I say it's covered in coral, it is covered in coral. If you see pictures, mm -hmm. you have to know what you're looking for. It doesn't really even look like a plane anymore. Um, right. Some of the earlier pictures do. You can kind of make out the shape. But like looking at it, it is, the coral is all over it um mm -hmm. they were able to take measurements and things and it is a plane like no one disputes that it is a plane it's just really right. difficult to see with the pictures that we have available but it is yeah. uh yeah it's it's not in good and good environment like yeah. you said the the yeah. aluminum is it, there's no way for example to get a serial number off the right plane at this point. you're not going to just pull that plane out of the water it's just it's just an impossibility no. at this point and you, you don't want to mm -hmm. do damage to the underwater the nautical environment there and it's it's very it's a very tricky situation for for i don't envy bill and his team for what they have to attempt to do here um and they've gone out a couple times but they've got limited equipment so they're trying to get more funding for more equipment uh bigger crew you know more operational um structure to get out there and to try to find out what's going on once and for all so um you know we'll see stay tuned i mean it's something could break at any time and we just you know it typically always does around the second of july something happens so we'll know hopefully soon you you mentioned um, descendants. Have you had any communication with any descendants of her? Uh, yeah, I, I talked to. Uh, I would say fairly regularly. Every once in a while, um, I, I talked to Amy Kleppner, who was her niece, who was Amelia Earhart's niece. Uh, Amelia Earhart had a daughter. Uh, I'm sorry, as a, a sister, Muriel didn't have any kids. <laughs> uh, um, depending on who you believe, uh, that's a real woo woo thing. Um, but yes, uh, we do talk to Amy Kleppner. Uh, she's, she's been very helpful and her son, Bram Kleppner, that the whole Kleppner side of the family has been very helpful. And, and, um, she, she remembers, you know, very little about, about, you know, aunt Amelia. She remembers her mother, Muriel, obviously was a very big, um, influence in, in Amelia's life. They're very close. And so we do talk, I do talk with Amy every once in a while. 
um, do check in with her very sweet lady, um, always willing to help, you know, if, if it makes sense, um, is always, it's always willing, she's always willing to kind of lend a hand and do what she can, whether it's, Hey, you know, one theory needs you to give a DNA sample because they might have a DNA match potentially, or they're, they're testing something or whatever. She's always very willing to do it. Um, so yeah, we, we talked to them and we talked to, um, I'm very close friends with the Putnam family, the grandchildren of George, Put George Palmer Putnam, who was Earhart's husband. So yeah, I, I talked to a pretty good amount of the family uh, every once in a while, depending on uh, what we're working on at a particular moment. And you're uh, working on a book about the case as well? Yeah, um, we are. We, they just, we just announced that we're, we're partnering with uh, Beyond the Fray um, and they are uh, publishing, going to be publishing a book. It's essentially just a, the book itself is a written transcript of season one. You know, we've, a lot of people have gotten us, asked me if, if we'd ever have a sort of season one in written form. A lot of our audience likes to consume something that way um, as opposed to the podcast. And so uh, we, we decided to sort of pull the trigger on it and, and work, uh, work on the book. Um, Jen's going to write the forward for it. I'm uh, transcribing uh, the episodes right now. We're going to be cutting it down because I think if season one is so long, some of the episodes are four plus hours. Nick and Marora was eight plus hours alone. So um, that translates into, you know, lots of pages. So rather than have a 3000 page book, we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to kind of trim it down to, to have a reflection and we're going to have some, some retrospective from myself and some of the guests that appeared during season one. And it's going to read like a, like a, sort of like an Earhart encyclopedia when it comes to the disappearance and, and the first half of it's going to be leading up to the disappearance. So we'll have a lot covering being covered in that book. So that's going to be hopefully out sometime next year. I'm, I'm, I've got to get it to them by end of calendar year. So we're working on it right now as we speak. That's fantastic. Good luck with that. Um, yeah, congratulations. I think Very Tim, cool. Tim probably you. just uh, pre-ordered it. He loves pre-ordering <laughs> books. He'll pre-order a book five years in advance if it's available <laughs> yeah. to him. Um, it might take me that long this at this rate. <laughs> We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. What does this do, like, historically? What is, if if the holy grail of disappearances, the plane, any evidence of Amelia Earhart, what is this, what benefit is this historically? Oh, gosh, uh, that, that's a good question. Um, well, f when it comes to aviation, it, it would... It, it would be a big deal. You know, anytime any piece of evidence is found in this case, it, it literally sets the world on fire when it comes to news. Like when the, when the Buka plane was found or when they announced that, that was, it was seen by half a billion people all over the world. When the Jaluit doc photo came out and the, the lost evidence documentary that Jen alluded to earlier came out in 17, that was a huge deal. You couldn't go anywhere. CNN, I mean, anything you can think of Fox news, it was everywhere. Um, if this thing was actually found and we had definite, uh, fine, you know, finite explanation of what happened to Earhart and Noonan, regardless of what it was, I, I think it would be a, a, a historical, um, it, it would be a, certainly for the U S probably the biggest historical find ever, maybe worldwide, it would be one of the biggest historical finds ever, especially if they were able to pull the plane out of the water in some case, in some way, like if it was found in the ocean somewhere, uh, or if Snavely's right and it's on Buka, they're ready to pull a chunk of it out or something like that. Um, it, it would be a, a really big deal. I mean, there's 
you know, Amelia Earhart is a, you know, she's an icon. She's a, she's a, she's still America's sweetheart. You know, if you look at the newsreel footage you can find on YouTube, uh, you know, if you look at all that stuff and you listen to her talk and listen to her speak, I mean, she was a, a just a worldwide celebrity. And um, she, I always, I kind of relate her a lot to, um, really to sort of like how, how Marilyn Monroe was in a way is she was, she was like multifaceted. So she could like turn on for the camera real easy. Um, and she could sort of be Amelia Earhart for the camera that everybody wanted. And then she had a real private side, obviously, um, you know, with her husband and she was a very fierce, um, you know, advocate for women's rights. Um, I think you see that now there's an, you know, there's an Amelia Earhart day at NASA. There's a reason for that you know, um, aerospace and, and aviation, she's influenced a lot of people in STEM and, and a lot of the people that we talk to. So, you know, if there was answers, it would be of extreme historical significance if that, if we had some kind of definite answer as to what happened, you know, to Amelia Earhart and to Fred Noonan, who was her navigator and was one of the best navigators probably of all time and one of the pioneers of navigation with Pan Am and stuff. So people a lot of times forget there were two people on that plane. Um, and Noonan was a, a brave guy to go on that plane with her and she put all her faith in him and um you know didn't quite work out in the end but um he he was a big loss too and i think if 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 it was determined what happened to him we would find uh that he would probably there would probably be a national fred noonan day when it comes to uh aviation and there would be certainly something for for Earhart for sure if that happened and you know to, to piggyback off that a little bit um not to run on too much, but like if, if Japanese capture ended up being, let's say what happened to them. And, and there was, that was definitely determined. Um, I've argued that Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan should be considered the first casualties of world war two. Cause this would have happened years before Pearl Harbor hit, you know, they were actually, um, you know, would have been considered American heroes if they would have died in Japanese custody and, and had all that prolonged capture um, and did went through God knows what they went through. So this this has the potential to break historically in multiple different ways. It just depends on who's right here. Um, and that's that's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah, I was going to say uh, a lot of the people that we've talked to that believe the Japanese capture thing. I I don't really believe it. I don't I don't think that that's what happened, but I will be the first to admit there is there is evidence for it. So I understand why people think that. Um, but there are people that are very, very invested in that story, in that theory. And if you talk to those people, they feel very, very passionately that Fred Noonan and Amelia Earhart deserve to be recognized as American heroes mm -hmm. because of what they went through and because of the possibility that they may have assisted the government. Um, and they're very, um, they take offense to the fact that they're just seen as oh, they've disappeared. Um, and they think that the government is refusing, but the government knows what happened and they're refusing to acknowledge like a mm -hmm. sacrifice, um, you know, in service to our country. And so for those people, if that turns out to be the case, it, so it could very well um, add to what we understand about World War II and what we understand about them as people and the role of the government. Um, mm -hmm. And so again, I think it's a long shot that that is what actually happened, but you never know. And yeah. It's also good to know that that isn't what happened if we can find that out. Right. Yes. Uh, we've always been, uh, my, my process is, is always as sort of like a, like an outsider kind of, you know, in a way, I mean, I, I work with everybody uh, happily because I think what they're certainly much smarter than I, and they are doing this work um, for all these different theories. My position though has become over the course of the last 15 years or so 
my position has become, let's not try to prove a single theory. Let's try to eliminate theories because that's the only way you can do this now. Um, everybody's sort of standing in the corner, pointing fingers at each other saying, you have it wrong. I have it right. That hasn't worked. So what we're trying to do now is move forward this possibility of like, look, let's Let's put every theory under a microscope and let's either exclude or include it, depending on what the evidence is. And let's follow it all the way to the end. You know, we have that we have that tagline on our show, follow the evidence wherever it leads. I don't care where this takes me. I don't care how out there it seems. Let's at least go down that path and then exclude it. Um, and then you can wipe one theory off the list. And I think that's kind of, you know, you have to whittle it down until there's, you know, yet one or two theories that are really serious competitors for what potentially happened. Um, and I think we're starting that with Buka. And I think, you know, what, one thing about those, those folks over there and Bill Snavely in particular, it's, it's a really refreshing, um, I, you know, attitude that he's got. He's, he says, Hey, if I'm wrong, we very well could be wrong. And I'm, I'm the first one to admit it. If we are wrong, I'm the first person to, to say that, um, he just wants to know what happened and he wants to know who's in this airplane and what this plane is. I think if you can eliminate Buka, that's a big elimination, uh, that you knock that off. I think if you can eliminate, um, Castaway, you know, they've been out there for 40 years. They painted that that island white, basically, I mean, with everything they can think of. Um, they've they've added some circumstantial evidence, but I feel like I think we talked about this in our very own show in season one. I feel like we could probably eliminate that theory. Um, of course, there's people that would disagree heartily with that, but I feel like if there was something there, and even sending out Bob Ballard and and uh, you know the crew that found the Titanic, and you know Ballard going on a tour saying, "I know where it's not. It's definitely not there." Um, if it was there, we would have found it. You know, um, they painted that island, everything around that island, and they just have not found anything. So I think that's probably safe to eliminate that theory. Um, so you're starting to cut some theories out, and it's starting to make it a little bit easier to sort of focus. Uh, your attention and sort of drill down on certain other theories. Japanese capture is going to be a very difficult one to eliminate um, because of the eyewitness testimony and all that stuff. But I mean, it's, it goes back so far. There's so much you have to go through to try to either exclude or include it uh, and crash and sink. It's, you know, some of the best people in the world have been out in that ocean, those parts of the ocean looking for that plane and everybody struck out. Um, but you've got those Atasca logs. You've got the testimony of the people that were there that, that Leo Bellarts, that Jen uh, alluded to earlier, who was the last person that was speaking with Earhart, um, who, you know, we had him on our show through a, a very special way. We did it with uh, archival audio footage and everything. And I actually had him take the stand in a modern day trial, which was really kind of neat. And he said his specific words were, I stepped out on to the radio, onto the deck expecting to see or hear her on the horizon. And I saw nothing. I heard nothing. But it was constant S5s all the way through. We were getting it. So she was right there. Um, and Leo Bellarts himself said that, you know, he'll never forget her, basically her screaming. You know, she was, this is a woman who was fearless, but at that last moment uh, knew that this was it. And uh, he said he'd never forgot that. And it's haunting to hear him say that. Um, so, you know, it's a case that's just got multiple rabbit holes and it's just, it's very difficult to sort of take anything apart and concretely say, no, this did not happen because it's, you know, you kind of have to bring it back into the mix, but that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to eliminate theories. That's the only way to do it. You've done some other cases. You've, uh, you've done some Jack the Ripper. You've done some John Wilkes Booth. Can you tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about these? Jack the Ripper. We opened with Jack the Ripper season two. Uh, that one, yeah, has a lot of got more theories if you can imagine than the Amelia Earhart story. More uh, suspects. There are so many suspects. 
so many suspects. Um, so for anyone that doesn't know that story, in 1888, there was a serial killer prowling the streets of Whitechapel, London, which was one of the uh, four districts there. There was a lot of workhouses, um, a lot, a lot of poverty and disease in that area of the city. And in 1888, five women were found murdered and um, eviscerated out on the streets, with the exception of one who was actually found in her home. Um, and they never caught the guy who did it. Uh, now, I say five. We can't even agree on five. Uh, as with any serial killer, especially one that isn't caught, you can never be certain how many victims. Um, but the generally accepted view is that those five uh, were victims of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, the, the canonical time, five, right? Right, yeah. They call them a canonical nickname. five. Yeah. A little nickname that they give. And um, and at the time, uh, Met Police uh, in London had three suspects um, that they later issued, you know, like a memo was released. Um, and so we, we kind of know who they think it was, but they also arrested hundreds of people. Um, and they questioned hundreds of people and they didn't make any actual arrests. Uh, so the case was never solved. And there are as many suspects as you can think. Like everyone that's looked at this case has their own suspect from the uh, ones that <laughs> sound fairly reasonable to the ones that say, well, it was, you know, a member of the royal family uh, or it was um, C.S. Lewis. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, that's my favorite one. Um, <laughs> yeah. So they, they also range from the fairly normal to the very, fairly bizarre. Um, and so that's what we did. We, we, we covered the case, we covered the facts of the case, um, and we did just like we did with Earhart. And this was kind of our first time trying to, to branch out into a new topic and really take some of the things that everyone liked about the way we presented the Earhart case and use them for the Jack the Ripper case. And in doing that, we kind of built our whole, um, and it was only like four or five episodes. We didn't go nearly in, as in depth as we did with Earhart, but we really built the whole story around a, a particular theory. And what I mean by that is that we did investigate all of them. We did talk to, you know, uh, we talked to some other podcasters. We, we, we teamed up with the Graveyard Tales podcast to try to go through all of the different theories, go through all of the different suspects. Uh, mm -hmm. But then we kind of saved our favorite uh, for last so that we could do a trial. Um, and that is what we did is we, we put Montague John Druitt on trial and named him as Jack the Ripper. And it was really fun. It was actually like, we did we tried to do like a, a, a criminal trial like what would it look like uh like what evidence is against him and things like that it's it's it, it was fun i had a lot of fun doing it such a macabre case such a very dark uh it's it it got really dark at times but that one was an interesting one um, and i encourage anyone i don't want to give too much away but i really do encourage anyone that's interested in the jack the ripper theory to go at least check out the trial by jury episode because i think that um our guests um john and christine they did an amazing job of presenting the case against Druitt. Um, and I came away convinced. And I'd mm -hmm. never considered Druitt before. I mean, he was, he was one of the original suspects, but he was kind of most contemporary researchers kind of put him aside as, well, it's really not possible it was him. But they took another look at it and they were like, actually, yeah, uh, there was a very good reason why he was suspected by police. And there's very good reason why it could have been him. Yeah, check out check out Jack the Ripper. It was it was a real uh, difficult for me. It was very difficult. I I remember specifically Jen tells a story, and I, I won't I won't uh, go too much into it. But she talks about the where she she remembers where she was when she first saw like the the crime scene photos, like the Mary Jane Kelly crime scene photos, 
Um, and I had seen those uh, who was the fifth victim, right? The fifth, the final victim. Mary Jane. Uh, mm-hmm. And she was actually younger, uh, significantly younger than most, you know, it, it seemed like Ripper had sort of an MO, like he had a type of women, like an age range or whatever, but this one sort of differentiated it kind of like it separated itself from the other one. She was only 25, I think at the time. Um, and this was the only one that he was able to actually lock himself in a room and take his time and the photos show it. And it was, it's, beyond graphic uh to look at and i even had no idea that they even had photos at the time like that um and i was able to see those i think the night before we recorded part one of that and it was right around halloween and it was it was just very it's very difficult very hard to stomach it um this is a guy that like it started sort of the serial the modern day serial killer sort of rage you know that that kind of took place around the world and and we sort of do make some interesting connections and some fun there's some fun speculate i don't want to say fun in that kind of case but there's some interesting speculation in there that happens um with another set of murders that actually takes place in austin which is really fascinating and, and interesting in and of itself and it you know there's little threads here that you people some people do connect and it's just a really crazy case um you know, and there's a, there, there's a lot of, I, I joke a lot because we went from America's Sweetheart to like everybody we're covering in season two is, is pretty much some of the most terrible people that ever lived in history. You have like the world's most notorious serial killer. You have, you know, John Wilkes Booth, who you alluded to earlier, who was, you know, basically a very well-known actor at the time, but he was you know, what he goes down in history for is the most heinous act uh, and one of some of the most heinous, heinous acts of all of in all of U.S. history. And then you've got you know, Henry Avery, who is a very famous pirate, uh, who was sort of known as the king of the pirates. Um, and uh, he did some very heinous and terrible things and piracy in, its, in and of itself was very graphic if, if you if you go beyond the surface of kind of what they did and what they stood for. Um, and then you have D.B. Cooper, who was like a very, you know, probably the, the least terrible of them all but he it was he still committed a very crazy crime and and you know there were victims involved in that crime a lot of people sort of you know skip over that part a lot um you know, people that were captured or basically that were um you know part of that hijacking that that cooper was in charge of and, and got away with apparently so it, it's like a season two is like full of just very bad people you know and kind of different crimes that people can do and sort of you know what people are capable of um and it's a you know, it can, can be rough in certain parts when you're covering stuff like that. It can be really hard to cover. Like you guys know, I don't have to preach to that, but it's like, it's very tough to cover certain things and certain topics. And uh, sometimes you struggle to get through it. Well, I love, I love the historical aspect that, that you folks have um, because it, it is, it is a way to kind of take the edge off of it because it doesn't feel so mm-hmm. close. Um, but I'm, I'm still hung up on C.S. Lewis. Uh, we're talking about the the, the writer of Narnia. The writer of right? Narnia was Jack the Ripper. Some people believe that. Yes. Well, wasn't he? I had to double check this. He wasn't born. He was born in 1889. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Right. I didn't say it was credible. I just said people out there think that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I've read Narnia. I, I think it could be him. It's basically a confession. Right. Narnia was the confession. Well, a, uh, another one that was really, it's really crazy is um, for, for a totally different reason. It's H.H. Holmes, who had the famous murder castle and everything. And I mean, he, he definitely had the mindset for it. But I, I think we, t- yeah, we talk about that. I don't think it was him. Right. We talk about like M.O.s and stuff and like, would it, you know, even though it's a terrible person, w- would that fit his M.O.? Would he go out in the streets and kill people like that randomly or, you know, like, so we talk a lot about interesting, a lot of interesting facets like that when during Ripper, it's, it gets pretty, pretty dark at points. But, you know. Oh, yeah, very cool. Yeah, I because I, I wrote down H.H. H. Holmes because that that is a fascinating yeah. theory with Jack the Ripper. Um, 
because that would mean that he would have to change location and MO and not just like a location. He's going to go from mm-hmm. Chicago to, to Boston. He's going from Chicago yeah. <laughs> across the ocean. And, and now he's a completely yeah. different serial we killer. We know about H.H. H. Holmes's history. Right. Like we know where yeah. he was born and where he grew up and where he went to school. And I mean, you can go see his picture at, was, is it Michigan where he went to school? You can go to like the med school there and see his picture. Like yeah. it's not him. They're two yeah. different people. <laughs> Right. Yeah, definitely him. Oh, yeah. Definitely so that's him. And, and that's that's it's funny. Like we, we talk about this, and it's like uh, it's like this with the Earhart thing, and it's like this with every other case. We like every time I look at something, it's not that person, or it's not this theory. And at the end, I'm like, it's this theory. It's for sure this theory. And then you look <laughs> at the next one or the next suspect, and it's like, oh, it's this guy or this. It's this theory. It's like, um, it's it's all part of sort of sort of the interesting aspect of the show. It's just like we we try to take like it, it's a mixture. It's it's um. It's it's historical mystery. Um, obviously, it's it's a little bit a little like a little pinch of true crime because we dabble into certain you know certain cases like Ripper and then we'll uh, there's some other ones we're tossing around maybe for a season three that we're gonna do some some favorites I have um, and then there's uh, you know there's obviously the legal aspect of it that we bring in that Jen bring it's entirely Jen that brings to the table it's like you know so it's 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 a law podcast it's a history podcast and it's a it's mystery and a little bit of true crime so it's like we're dipping into four different genres um for the show and it's like this amalgamation that kind of you spit it all out and it's vanished essentially that's kind of what it what the show is so it's it's a crazy concept but it works and i think it's largely due to um you know her ability to sort of bring um all the rules of law to the table you know what makes sense what can you do what do we have to stretch on a little bit um because obviously you can't try you know different people on amelia Earhart. but if you were able to do that you know how does that how would how might that look how might that sound um, what arguments might you make? Things like that. So um, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Well, that is amazing. So thank th- thank you so much for for coming on and talking with us about these cases and about these disappearances and your podcast. Um, I can't wait to uh, to dive in. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, thank you for having us uh, again. I just want to bring it back to uh, Amelia Earhart. I again knew about her. Um, but what you, what the two of you do breaking down, uh, just like every element about her and why it's important. I love the answer that the both of you gave as to why it's important to find the plane and figure it out because it, it does have this, um, staple in history right now that would be great mm-hmm. to be removed. And you can look at what she was as a, who she was as a person, uh, how she contributed to, uh, women's rights and how she contributed to aviation and, um, and then, and Noonan, you know, no one knows that. I mean, you have to, I mean, some people do, but I would say just on the surface, that's something you have to tell people, you know, there was somebody else with her, like all of that needs closure. We can all learn from it. And you guys do such a good job. You, you really compliment each other nicely too. Oh, well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. We love working together. It's, it's a, it's a great pairing and it's, it's fun and we can, we hope to do it for a very long time. Absolutely. And feel free to send those law degrees over to Tim and I. So yeah, we can, you uh, got it. I'm a little tired right now. Y'all want to come here and talk to all my clients? Y'all feel free. Sure. Sure.
When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.